Last week we began looking at chapter 2 of Romans, and we heard a warning about God's coming judgment. And Paul continues writing about God's judgment for all of chapter 2. So I wanted to give you a brief overview of the chapter before looking at today's specific passage. Because we're going to be looking at these over the next few weeks. So last week we heard this warning. That warning, all of you will face God's judgment. So don't pass judgment on others thinking somehow you won't be judged. That all people will be judged by God. So that was last week. This week, we are thinking specifically about how God judges all people. How does God judge people? And then the rest of chapter 2, we're going to break down into three weeks with three different excuses or objections to, hey, but what about? How does God do this in his judgment? Does this seem to make sense? And so Paul will address all of those excuses in the coming weeks. But today our focus is specifically on how God judges all people. And so let's turn to the Word of God this morning. We're in Romans chapter 2. Romans 2, we're looking at verses 6 through 11 if you want to turn there. Romans 2, verses 6 through 11 as we hear the Word of God this morning. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Let us pray. O Lord God, we thank you for your word. And we pray, O Lord, that you would please give us ears to hear your word today. Work through your word by the power of your spirit and in answer to our prayers, O God, that you might accomplish the purposes that you have set for your word, that you would work in us and so transform us to live as your people. I pray, O Lord, that you would please use me today in spite of my own sins to faithfully proclaim your word, that you would use me to expound and apply it in such a way that we might hear the truth to the glory of your name. Amen. So again, our big question this morning is how does God judge all people? How? How does that happen? So we're going to look this morning at this idea of God judging, and so we're going to see the basis of God's judgment. So on what basis does he judge us? We're going to see how he is impartial. He shows no partiality. What does that mean? And then we're going to look at the two possible verdicts of God's judgment. So what do we expect from his judgment? So we're going to start where the passage starts, which is in verse 6, and the basis of God's judgment. Paul writes this, He will render to each one according to his works. That sounds really simple. And it is. 
that God will judge each person according to his or her works. And it seems like verse 6 doesn't say a whole lot, but really, in saying so little, it rules out so much. So if each person is judged according to his own works, then that rules out being judged for the sins of your parents or family. So if your father goes to prison for committing murder, you will not be judged for his sins. If your sister is addicted to prescription drugs, you will not be judged for that. If your child is sexually promiscuous, you will not be judged for those actions. Each person is judged for their own works. And so it's ruling these things out. And so if this is the basement the the basis for judgment, we can also rule out that we will be judged in like a big pile of people as opposed to individually. Sometimes this happens in school where a class, whether it's an elementary school class or a high school class, where it's a substitute teacher and the class is just bad. And maybe it's mostly just a few kids, but the whole class gets in trouble. God is not like that. He will judge each person fairly according to his own works. He is able to discern who acted wrongly in a big group. His judgment will be fair. So he rules that out. This also means that if each person is judged according to his own works, that God is able to sort through motivations and intentions. He knows why we do what we do, and these motivations factor into his judgments. Notice verse 8, how it says, those who are self-seeking. That God can tell when we do seemingly good things for selfish reasons. God is not fooled by appearances. He can see to the heart and He judges our works based on motivations and intentions as well as actions. So again, even though it says so little... It is saying more than what we think. It also shows us that if God is judging each person on the basis of his or her works, then he must have a standard by which he judges us. Look again at verse 8. Those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. So God has a standard of truth by which He defines good and evil, righteousness and unrighteousness. That God has graciously revealed this standard in His law. This tells us something. This means that we are not judged based on the world's definition of good and evil. It also tells us that we are not judged based on our own definition of good and evil. We are judged based on God's objective standard of good and evil. And God's standard is not wishy-washy. It is not unclear. God does not judge us like an Olympic figure skating judge. You never know what they're going to do. They're thinking style points, that outfit doesn't look right. Oh, could have been way better. Like, no. God has an objective set of standards by which He judges us. 
that He judges us on the basis of each person's works and how their works line up with God's revealed law, which perfectly outlines what is good and what is evil. And so God judges all people on the basis of their works according to His righteous standard. Now, it's all well and good to have a righteous standard of judgment, but you have to worry, is that standard going to be equally applied to all people? And that's what Paul addresses in verse 11. It's kind of the bookend of our passage here. Paul writes this, that God shows no partiality. So God not only judges each person on the basis of their works, but he applies that judgment consistently to all people. Nobody receives special treatment. Nobody gets an exemption. All people will be judged on the same basis, by the same standard, without any favoritism. And again, that is like super short. And yet it tells us so much. So if God does not show partiality, that means he will not accept bribes from wealthy people. I have taken calls at our church from well-off individuals who call and say, I'd like to make a donation to your church. They don't go to our church. Their family doesn't go to our church, never has gone to our church. They're just like, I want to give money to a church and I hear good things. And I try to explain, thank you, that's very nice of you, but uh, this, I don't somehow like tell God, hey, he's good, you know? There were enough zeros on that check that we're going to let you slide come judgment day. No, you will not be treated differently because there were a lot of zeros on the check that you put in the offering plate. God does not show partiality. See, it tells us so much. We, we also can think then, okay, God does not show partiality. That means he's not going to be impressed by famous people. In our justice system, celebrities tend to get treated differently. The movie star is spoken to deferentially by police. The star athlete gets off with a warning because we don't want him to miss the big game. But God does not show favoritism. God on Judgment Day isn't going to be like, oh, it's Taylor Swift. I'm so, like, come on through. Like, no, he is not going to be impressed. There is no VIP line that skips the judgment. All people must stand before Him and be judged like everyone else. Again, since God does not show partiality, it's famous people, but it also means He will not be intimidated by powerful people. One of the most outrageous things a person can say in our world is, don't you know who I am? Like, it is gross. It asserts that that person is so powerful that we should just let them do whatever they want. And that if we dare try to hold them accountable, that they have the power to retaliate and get back at us for holding them accountable. Well, God is not intimidated by persons. In fact, in the Bible, we consistently see that when God shows up, people fall down. And ask for God to show mercy. And so no politician, no criminal, no bully, nobody is able to intimidate God into going easy on them in judgment. God shows no partiality. Now this has another implication that may not be as obvious in our minds. 
And that is, if God does not show partiality, it also means He does not go easy on people who've had a hard time. We might think that God should not harshly judge the poor, the oppressed, the abused, the weak, because they've had such difficult lives. Well, it is true that God cares for the weak and the powerless. He does love the poor and the oppressed. He does comfort the harassed and the grieving. But He can show tender care and fairly judge them. No person has suffered so much in this life that they are somehow exempt from God's judgment. Paul further explains God's impartiality in verses 9 and 10 where he writes twice, the Jew first and also the Greek. And instantly you're like, well, that sounds like partiality to me. But it's not partiality. It's an order or a sequence that both Jew and Gentile will be judged, but God says the Jews go to the front of the line. His people go to the front of the line. Now, this is not a line like a kid's birthday party waiting in line to hit the pinata. Like, eventually you may not get to hit the pinata because someone in front of you is going to break it. It's not like God's going to be out of judgment and somehow if you're at the back of the line, you're going to get out free. No, like God will have plenty of time to judge everyone in line. And we will all be judged according to the same basis and the same standard, no matter the order in which the judgment goes. And so God shows no favoritism, no partiality in his judgment. So, if God judges each person according to his or her works, and he judges them all impartially, then what are the possible verdicts that we can expect from God's judgment? Well, just like in our court systems, there are only two verdicts. Guilty and not guilty. The same is true of God's judgment. Except we might change the words to be righteous and not righteous. These are the only two possible verdicts in God's final judgment. That tells us that God does not use a percentage system. You got an 88% on your goodness scale. God does not use a letter grade system. God does not use one of those online surveys like, how did you like our service? Are you very satisfied or very dissatisfied? That is not what God does. We are told in verse 7, two different verdicts. God gives only two. We see them twice. Verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. We see them there. It goes good, bad, bad, good. We are told in verse 7, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Then in verse 10, Paul adds, there will be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. So one verdict is for those who do good. And at first glance, it sounds kind of strange. It sounds like these people are seeking glory and honor for themselves and they will be rewarded. And to us, we're like, but that sounds self-seeking, which is how you describe the bad people. So, so what do we do? But the glory and honor sought by those who do good is the glory and honor of God. So those who seek to glorify and honor God through their good works will receive eternal life. That is the first possible verdict. Those who do good by seeking to glorify and honor God receive eternal life. 
The second verdict, far less appealing. We see in verses 8 and 9, For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. I want you to notice two things about how these people are described. First, notice that it is for those who are self-seeking. Our world encourages us to be self-seeking. To follow your heart. To be true to yourselves. To obey your own truth. But God judges us according to the truth. That there is an objective standard of truth and righteousness that we must obey. It is not follow yourself, it is follow the Lord. That's the first thing to notice here. The second thing is to notice that this self-seeking behavior of disobeying God's truth is called evil. Normally, we reserve the word evil for serial killers for genocidal dictators, for child predators, for horror movie villains. We don't think of people who are following their hearts as people who do evil. And yet that is exactly what God says, that it is evil to rebel against God. It is evil to replace God's standard of truth with your own. And God warns that all those who do such evil will face His wrath and fury in judgment. These are the two possible verdicts when God judges each person. Every person will either receive eternal life or they will receive God's wrath. Now, it is possible that there may be gradations of sentencing within these two verdicts, just like our justice system. Our justice system only has two verdicts, but it varies the sentencing based on the severity of the crimes. And so similarly, it is possible that there would be greater rewards or more severe punishments given by God according to works. But do not let that caveat fool you into thinking that someone is going to end up with a cozy hell. Like it's not that, it's just cozy. It, you know, it's not great. It, it, you, you could do better. And no one is going to end up with a disappointing heaven. The verdict matters far more than the variation in sentencing. And there are only two of them. Righteous and not righteous. And so having looked at this passage, I have to ask you a very important question. How will you be judged by God? Hearing that God judges us based on our works. Hearing that He is going to do so impartially. Which verdict do you think you deserve? Now, I think that's a very hard question for us. Because we hear these two descriptions and we're like, I don't really fit that. But I don't really fit that either. I've done some good, but I certainly have been self-seeking. So let me help you. Imagine for a moment that later in our service, when the offering plates are passed and they go by you, that instead of you putting money in the plate, you decide, I'm going to take money out of the plate. 
Did you do something that was self-seeking and evil in disobedience to God's commands? Yes. But you might object and say, well, think of all the weeks that I put something in instead of taking it out. Shouldn't that count for something? Well, yes, those were good, but they don't undo the evil that you just did this week. And it would be right to judge you in light of your self-seeking, evil, disobedient actions, even though you had been predominantly good. The same goes for God's judgment. Yes, we may think of ourselves as good people who do mostly good things. On a percentage scale, we'd be like, whew, I would have taken that in math class. Yep, that's all right. As a grade, we might even give ourselves like a B plus if we're feeling good about ourselves. On the survey scale, very satisfied. Like we're probably not very satisfied, but we're, we're satisfied with our goodness. But we still do evil. We still do that which deserves judgment. And God's standard of goodness is perfect righteousness. And you don't meet that standard. And you are not alone. No one does. No one is good enough on their own to get into heaven. No one is good enough on their own to be judged by God as deserving of eternal life. And so even though there are two possible verdicts, none of us can get the one verdict of eternal life by our works. Even though we are tempted to think of ourselves as good people, even though the vast majority of Americans believe they are good people who will go to heaven, we must hear the Word of God and that it says something differently. The Word of God says that no one is good enough. And this is why we need Jesus. I believe this is the longest I have ever gone in a sermon without mentioning Jesus. And that's intentional. Because we must see our need of Jesus before we can trust Him. Well, what must we trust about Jesus? We must trust that on our own, we stand condemned before God on the basis of our own works. And that only Jesus can save us from that judgment. Okay, well, how? How can Jesus save us from God's judgment without God being unfair? Without God showing some partiality? Well, here's how. That Jesus is the only one who ever lived in perfect obedience to God. And even though He did that and deserved eternal life, He said, I will take your punishment on Myself. I will be declared guilty in your place. And I will suffer the sentence of death and hell for you. And in so doing, our sins have been judged in Him. And we no longer need to fear judgment on our evil deeds. And Jesus says here are my good works. Here is the righteousness that you can't do on your own, that I have done. This will be judged by God as worthy of eternal life. And so God doesn't need to look at your good works. You have my good works to show Him. This is how God can judge sinners fairly while also giving us eternal life. 
See, God is a just judge, and He had to punish our sin. He had to reward Christ's righteousness. And so Jesus is our only hope of avoiding a verdict of guilty and of God's wrath. Hearing the hope we have, how will you be judged? Do you still trust in your own goodness? Do you still think you are a good person deserving of heaven? When you stand before God, will you try to say, I, here is my case. I think I did a B-plus job. I was satisfied with my goodness. I think I've been good enough. Or do you see that your goodness on its own will never be enough? That you deserve God's wrath and fury and that your only hope is to say, this Jesus guy here, I'm holding on to him. I trust He took the punishment I deserve. I trust that He gives me the reward of eternal life. I will stand on Him and with Him knowing that He alone deserves eternal life. And He says, I can have it in Him. How will you be judged by God? May we all see our great need of Jesus and that we have a good and gracious Savior who helps us to stand in Him on that day. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we pray that you would seal this word in us. That you would bless the hearing of this word. That you would work in our hearts and minds. That you would give us eyes to see our own sinfulness. To see and look ahead to that judgment day where there is nothing good that we can do to stand before you except cling to Jesus. So God, I pray that for each and every one of us here that you would help us to see our desperate need of Christ as our Savior that you would help us to recognize the good we do is never enough. And so God, please help us to trust in Him and so change and transform us that as we trust in Him, we desire to do good, not because we will be able to stand in that goodness, but simply out of love for a God who saves. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.